Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. here last week, we started a new series that we are calling Greater Than. Uh, We talked, uh, we used kind of the illustration of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who created this uh, seminary for the Confessing Church, and the seminary was extremely small, uh, lasted for only two years, but there's a a scene that's told by one of his peers where he takes him up on a hill and he looks out over the Nazi regime and says, you know what, out there are disciples being made of a kingdom of terror and a kingdom of torment. And if God's kingdom is going to reign, that the church has to be stronger than that, that this has to be greater than that. And that's kind of the inspiration for this whole series. And there's different things in your life. There's places you want to go. There's goals that we have as a church. And these things are only going to be accomplished when this is greater than that. So this week, we kind of dive into our first topical version of this, and that is that Worship has to be greater than idolatry. Worship has to be greater than idolatry. Our passage this morning comes from Romans uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. There's really going to be lots of scripture kind of scattered throughout, but this is kind of the base scripture. So I'm going to read that for us as we get started. And it says, starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And these things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
So we look at this passage, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's intense. This is that, that point when Paul is talking and he's like letting them have it, right? He is, he is no, not sugarcoating anything. You're sitting there, Paul is preaching and you're like, he's writing a letter, but you're hearing Paul and he's just like, man, you're like, I am, whoa. This is when the teacher calls you out in class and your face gets really warm. And you're like, okay, I'll put the headphones up. Okay, right? Like this is intense. And, he's, and he, he has this intense sound because I think he sees and he understands the gravity that idols have in our life. And the, the hard part is, the hard part is, especially in our American culture today, we don't really, I mean, we know that there's things that are our priorities are out of line. Like maybe there's something that we have above God or something like that. But, but this sense of idols is, is kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around because in, in this time they were literal other gods. Like we, we talked about a while back with, with Aaron coming down off the, or Aaron's got everybody's jewelry while Moses is up on the mountain and they, they make this golden calf out of it, right? And so often I hear people just say, you know, if I could see the miracles of the Bible, then I would believe. But look at these people. They just crossed an ocean, right? On dry ground. Explain that. Like a miracle of God, yet Moses is gone for a couple other days and like, who's that Moses guy? I don't know. Let's make our own God. So, you know, there's just this sense of, of the, 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 the heart's natural desire is idolatry, to take things that are not God, things that were created by God for the good of people, but to elevate it above God. Idolatry is this real persistent reality that even today that we have to face. It's it's got power that enslaves us, but what we have to understand is that Jesus has power over those idols. You see it in the very first sin that we see in Scripture in Adam and Eve, where the, the sake says, you can be like God, right? The very first sin is to take self and promote self to above God's status, to, to idolize Self. We talked about Moses, or we talked about Aaron and the Israelites. The, anything that you could think that that comes above God becomes an idol. Tim Keller kind of defines it like this. He says, "What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give." He also says that a counterfeit God, aka an idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that you would lose it, that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You hear this and you think, man, that's good things, right? A lot of times we think idols are things like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? But the truth is you could put your spouse above God. You could put a parent above God. You could put your kids above God. You could put your work above God. As a pastor, I could put ministry above God. All these things that are really good things can become idols. Think about it. If you were to lose it, would it cause you to not even feel like life is worth living, because nothing is internal except for our Heavenly Father. And everything on this earth, all the things you can possess, all the things you can gain, your status, all that stuff can be lost. If you're willing to sin to get whatever it is, it's probably an idol. Or should you not be able to get whatever that is, you would sin as a reaction. It's probably an idol. 
Think about Addie Lee, even this morning, right? She wanted a donut and I said no, and she started crying. She started pitching a fit, right? How many of us, if there's something in our life that we want and we don't get it, our natural reaction is unrighteous anger or to blame God or to have all the, if there's something that hits you like that, it's most likely an idol. You kind of have to, to unpack what an idol is in this abstract way, because each one of us are different. Each one of us has hobbies, has desires, has dreams, has ambitions. And so each one of us could have a different idol. It's this vast thing of whatever it could be. So you kind of have to just say, you know what, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to me? What is something that I've, I've placed in a place that's not right? It's, this, this idolatry is a disorder of loves, right? Like you're supposed, it's good to love your family, but you're supposed to love God more than the family. So it's this disorder of loves is, is kind of what this idolatry is. And if you look at First um, John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it kind of, this one passage kind of unpacks three major idols that I think kind of generalize everything we face. It says, do not love the world for the things of the world. Do not love the, th- do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you kind of see three things here. You see that there, the first one is just the, 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 uh, idol of the flesh. This is like a heart idol, right? And you see that that this is something that's kind of inside. It's something eternal. It's kind of one that's the easiest for us to picture. There's a, a powerful verse in Ezekiel where, where God says that the certain, the Ezekiel is meeting with him. He says, then certain of these elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Listen to what it says. God is saying this to Ezekiel. He says, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set them a stumbling box of their iniquity before the faces, before their faces. God is saying that I can see into the hearts of man. I can see into what's going on in here. It's not, it's not the outwardly thing. It's not something that even Ezekiel could see. He's sitting there and there's these guys before him and it's, there's something about them that's not right that he can't even see. Right? Have you ever just, Lauren is, is really great at this. She's got this gift of discernment that there's sometimes she meets somebody and they like give her a funny feeling. And I'm like, I don't get it. I mean, they seem normal to me. And then later on you find out they're, they're like corrupt. Okay. And there's just some, she's got this discernment that I don't have. I just see everybody and love everybody. Right. But she kind of can see underneath it. And that's what's happening here. There's these guys that are elders. They're before Ezekiel. And God is saying that I can see their hearts. And they have idols before them. God can see down into the desires of our heart. God has the power to see that. It's this inward nature. It's not necessarily an outward behavior, but an inward nature. And this is what I was talking about, where there's too many of a, too many things to list. It could be money. It could be sex. It can be power. It could be control. It could be fear of man. It could be status. It's whatever. There's, there's a whole laundry list of idols, but a lot of times they could be summed up as a heart idol, an, an, an idol of the flesh. The other one is the world, right? This is cultural idols. It's talking about don't be of the world. The things of the world will fade away. And this is kind of the cultural idols. And what's really interesting is while Paul is writing this, he's saying, look, there are all these different cities 
And all these cities have these different gods and goddesses in them, like literal gods and goddesses in them. And there's these things that, that their, their whole culture is about. Or, uh, we've talked about it in Ephesus before where there's uh, the um, female god and, and that they, they actually have a major part of their economic system is prostitution because this is a sign of the god. And so there's, there's these gods and goddesses in these Greco-Roman cultures that almost dictates the systems of the government, the systems of social status. They control what's going on around them. And, and so when we think about that, like, we don't really have that today, right? Like, you know, you're not going to go into Conyers and see the God of Conyers <laughs> dictating how things unfold, right? But I think there is a little sense of this, a little sense of this in our culture. And, and, I, and I would explain it and kind of illustrate it like this. Um, put on an Alabama hat and go hang out in Athens for a little bit, Right? There's these systems that kind of uh, uh, little local gods, almost city by city. Think about Hollywood and, and the entertainment business. Think about New York and fashion. And, and there's, I'm not saying these things are bad, but I'm saying that, that you can look at cultures. Think about Vegas and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? There's, there's, there's cities and there's cultures and there's infrastructure of people. And there's these idols that kind of dictate how life is done in these areas, and we as humans, we may not be in Vegas or in New York or Hollywood, but you know what? We're in Covington and we're in our workplace and we're in our schools. We're in wherever we're at. And all of these little societies have little idols that, that kind of dictate how life is done. And we as humans have these like little antennas and we're like, what, what do I need to do to fit in? What do I need to do to be liked? What do I need to do to be rewarded? What do I need to do to be a part of it? We have this nature, this this natural way of wanting to be liked, wanting to be a part of the community. And so there's these idols that kind of get elevated and they can dictate how we do things. We find ourselves asking, what is valued in this culture? What do I do to fit in? How do I get rewarded? And then we have this tendency to adjust and conform to those things. Whether we want to admit it or not, in our own lives, we see heart idols. In our own cultures, we see cultural idols in the world around us. And the tendency, you really can kind of take a step back and look at this. And you kind of have, uh, if we want to talk about politics for a minute, and I'm not going to talk about politics for a long time, but you kind of have, on one side, you have people who would call themselves a conservative. And they want to make sure that the heart idols are taken care of. You got to make sure you're right, because if you're not right, who cares what's going on out in the world? And then you have other people who would call themselves liberals and they're like, you know what, who cares if you're right? You got to make sure the world is right. And you kind of have this contrast of you're either, it's either we care all about the culture or we care all about the heart. But if we're going to be a church that is stronger than the world, then we got to be a church that cares about both. We care about ourselves. We care about our heart. We care about things are right with us. But we also care about our culture. We care about what's going on around us. And the third thing we see, and after we have these two categories, the third one is kind of this overarching category that gives those idols power. And that's demonic forces. That's the devil. You've got the flesh, you've got the world, and you've got the devil. And a lot of times we don't like to talk about the spiritual powers. We don't like to talk about the dark stuff because it's kind of weird and unusual. But the truth is that the, the, the Satan and his armies, they use these idols as a foothold. Scripture, there's scripture that talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger and giving the devil a foothold in that relationship. 
And the whole point is, this, is it, the, even if you go and you like unpack the, the original language of this verse, it, it uses this word topos, which is where we get the word topography, right? The map. And you actually go in, it's a military word where the, the uh, general would go in and he'd look at this map and he'd find a point of access to attack the enemy. And there's this sense of the devil is looking for a point of access. And these idols, whether of the flesh or of the world, is a point of access where the Satan can get in. His armies can get in and say, I can tear this marriage apart. I can tear this work relationship apart. I can tear this church apart. All I got to do, I can tear this life apart. I just got to get something, an idol above God. And that gives me a foothold. That gives me grounds to get in. So we have to understand that, that idolatry is, is so deadly because it is Satan's foothold, Satan's opportunity to get in and tear something apart. You kind of have three words that start with D so you can kind of follow along, but this is why idolatry is so dangerous, why it's so deadly. The first thing is deception. And a lot of times when it's deception, you don't know. When you're being deceived, you don't know it. You're able to lie to yourself. You're able to believe something to convince yourself that it's not happening. Let me go back and we look at verse 21 of our scripture. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, the idols, temptation, they bring all of these false promises, these false warnings, these false definitions of success and failure. We begin to believe those things. We begin to believe those lies and our, and our lives are, are turned upside down because we believe the deception. It tricks us into thinking something that's not true is true. And we begin listening to advice and we begin taking actions, but it's all because of this false promise of taking some kind of creation, taking something that's supposed to be good and we elevate it above God. The next thing is that it's, it's after it deceives us, after you get this deception, it leads us into distortion. It's no longer just a backwards way of thinking. Now it's a backwards way of acting. It de- first deceives us, then it distorts us. I keep reading in verse 21, it says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, this is uh, kind of crazy because we kind of believe things and we end up jumping on board and going full force at them. Uh, G.K. Bale says that whatever people revere, they resemble. And they either, whatever they revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. The things that we hold above all are the things that we look like. And that can either lead to destruction or it can lead to restoration if we have God in the right place. You think about how people get excited about something and they jump on board. And uh, I heard a, um, a pastor talking about this and he, he used the illustration of uh, biking. Men, men in their like early 40s getting on these biking kicks, right? And he lived in an area where everybody around him, everybody his age was like, they're getting these tight latex suits they're like riding down they're like on these bikes and they're running it's kind of crazy outfits and I can remember being and it, it related to me because I have uh, someone that I know that's into this type of biking and I have all these same like this is kind of weird but you know you should not be okay whatever but I can remember being at like Starbucks when I was working there and they would be riding through Clemson and they'd walk in and they, you'd have like this gaggle of 45 year old men wearing clothes that's way too tight all <laughs> all wanting like a water and a hot coffee. And I'm like, you are literally pouring sweat. Why do you want a hot coffee? But okay. And there's just this sense of like, I don't understand it. 
But when you get into a community, there's a culture and everybody's kind of doing the same thing. And it's all they talk about, writing the, the strategy for, for this lap, how fast they were going here, when they were doing that. I'm just like, I have no interest in that whatsoever, right? But they're all like each other. They have this interest. And I'm, I'm not saying biking is bad. Okay, don't get that. But this is an illustration. Like when something is an idol, whether it's a heart idol or it's like those things around us, it becomes all we focus on. It shapes the way our life looks. It shapes the decisions we make. It shapes where we go, how we interact with people, what our goals are, and whatever this is, if it's something that we revere, it becomes something that shapes and distorts and and decides how we act almost. And so there's this sense of when something is an idol, not only does it at first becomes an idol because it deceives us, then it distorts our actions, which inevitably leads to destruction. How does someone become an addict? How does someone get to this place? How does someone get to this place where their life is literally falling apart? It's because they've been deceived. Their lives have been distorted. And they're acting on these idols. And it will ultimately lead to destruction. Verse 18 said this. It said, For the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's kind of weird when you read scripture about wrath because I grew up and I see this this heavy culture of people really yelling, let's be honest, yelling the wrath of God. Like you sinner, you're there on the street corner telling you that you're dying and going to hell because you cut the grass on Sunday, right? And there's this sense of like angry God, wrath of God, and it's kind of got this bad reputation, but you can't ignore the wrath of God because the wrath of God is in scripture. It's really there, and the church kind of has a bad rap, but there's this sense of God is saying that when we let our lives be controlled by our idols, there's this wrath of God that leads to destruction, and the terrifying part of this is that it's not the wrath of God as like a, uh, uh, what's the word that I wrote down? Um, it's not an intervention wrath, right? I think about intervention wrath as I wasn't really angry at Addie Lee, but she was going towards a socket. And I'm like, Addie Lee, no, right? This quick, like, stop because you want to intervene and stop it from happening, right? But this is not that intervention type of wrath. This is, it's much worse. It's terrifying if you think about it. It's this passive wrath, this settled wrath, this God is saying, you know what? You want to make yourself an idol? You know, you want to make sex an idol? You want to make your job an idol? Okay. And his wrath says, I will let you have the desires of your heart. And we get to a place where we learn the hard way how truth and righteousness can actually restore us because we get into the destruction of our own decisions, of our own idols. There's uh, been numerous natural disasters in my lifetime that have hit America um, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes that have done unspeakable damage to buildings, to homes, to lives. And almost always, when people find out I'm a pastor, especially in times of these natural disasters, the question comes up, do you think God is punishing America? And the truth is, when you look at scripture, there's times where God's intervening wrath is a thing where he allows a natural disaster or something to intervene because his people are are going off their own way and he's wanting to bring them back. But then you see times like this passive wrath. And my thought is, you know, I don't think 
I don't think America's at this place where God's got his intervening wrath. I don't think that us as America has got an intimate enough relationship with God where he's sending his intervening wrath. It's probably more something like global warning. (laughs) Now, the truth is, I think we're at that place (laughs) where God is passive. He's saying, you know what? You want to you want to do it on your own? You want to have your own god? You want to be your your own idol? Okay. Okay. And it always leads to to destruction. I work in banking and so uh one of the things I think about when us having our own idols and being kind of our own gods, I think about greed. I'm going to read you a quote in a second here that I have on my phone. Um but I think about the collapse of like 2008, like we're, you know, a decade removed from this. And there's this sense of, of honestly, banks being greedy, people being greedy, wanting to have all this power, having all this more and more money, more and more money. And they get to this place and it, and it creates this unbelievable crash that has all of this destruction that follows it. And I actually want to read you a quote from uh, George Packer. He says this, when the crash came here, it wiped out 9 million jobs, took away 9 million homes, erased retirement accounts, pushed large numbers of Americans out of the middle class. Every economic certainty creates its own imagery. The Great Recession that accomplished the financial, the financial crisis didn't bring back bread lines or industrial strikes. This time the depression was quiet and lonely, a subdivision, quiet and lonely, a pile of mail at the doorstep of a deserted house in a brand new subdivision, a foreclosure judge presiding over a stack of files, a middle-aged man playing video games all hours of the day with the shades drawn, a retired woman trying to get a human being on the phone at a bank. You have this absolute destruction that isn't bringing people together, but instead driving people apart. In Jeremiah uh, verses seven, or chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, it says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see uh, any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. A lot of times if you're in church culture, you'll hear a Christian say, you know, I'm in a, a, a desert season, a season of anxiety or a season of dryness. I can't seem to connect with God. It's a hard time. And it's just this season of emptiness, a, se- a desert season. And what we're talking about here when we believe and we follow and we, d- we act on our idols, it's not a season of desert, but it is the, the inevitable future. It's a lifelong desert. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 says, Has any nations changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utter desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hooed for them themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. We take things and we idolize them, whether it's money and things 
and they create these things in our life that leave us empty. If, you, if it's money and things, you'll never have enough. If it's beauty and sexuality, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age inevitably show up, you'll die a thousand deaths before you're ever placed in the ground. If it's power, you'll always feel afraid. You'll feel like you need more and more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If it's intellect, you'll end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the edge of your seat waiting to be found out. The truth is devastation happens when we let idols distort our thinking. We have to come to a place where we stop putting things above God, stop letting those things dictate how we act. Idolatry will end us. So the call then is this. We have to tear down our idols. We have to give them up. We have to worship the one and only God. The apostle John, he calls him, you know, if you read the book of John, he calls himself the one that God loved, the one that loved, the Jesus loved. And he wrote some letters, some letters later on. We see first, second, third John. But at the end of first John, he says this in first John 5, 21, he says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, before we kind of get into that, I'm coming to the end. And so, so stay with me. But there's two responses to, to idolatry that I think lead us astray. And the first one is a religious response. It says this in uh, Colossians. It says, if, we, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All of these things according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Saying you follow all these rules. You, do, you don't do all the things you're not supposed to do. You go to church, you pray before your meals, you, you carry a Bible in your car, you've got the Bible app on your phone. You have all of these things you know that you're supposed to do to call yourself a Christian. But it's just a lie. They do nothing in stopping the indulgence of flesh. There's a sense of if you have idols, you're, you're, the way you fight that is worship, right? We're saying that worship has to be greater than idolatry. But there's a worship, there's a form of worship that is not greater than idolatry. It's a manifestation of idolatry where we go through the motions, we act and we do this and we do this and it's just an appearance. It's an appearance of, do, of doing all the right things and not doing the wrong things, but God's spirit is nowhere in it. It's like our own tool to try to manipulate God into liking us and, and listening to our prayers over someone else's prayers. But we have to understand that this religious legalism response is not the way that we tear down our idols. The other way that, we, that is approached is a secular way, right? So you've got the religious and you've got the secular way. And the best way I know to illustrate this is from a true story that a, a lady posted on her uh, online blog. And she talked about how she was uh, a non-believer going to a secular counselor. And she was in this bad relationship that she just couldn't get out of. And uh, all these things were going wrong. And so she's going to this counselor to figure out like why she won't leave this relationship, why she can't get out of it. In the middle of these sessions with this counselor, she surrenders her life to Christ. She gets saved. She starts going to church and she starts following Jesus. As she's in these sessions with this counselor, she says, she gets this advice. She says, he is not worthy of yourself. Say to yourself, I'm worthy of better. You need to get out of 
this relationship. You need to get out of his control. You need to finish your degree. You need to go get your master's. You need to get a job, a good paying job, make good money. You need to get out of that, set yourself up. You are an independent woman who doesn't need a man. That's the advice she's given. And see, the the secular response of the religious response is to say, you know what, I'm going to go through the motions. The secular response is to take a bad idol, a dysfunctional idol, and replace it with a more functional idol. And this woman talks about in her blog how she realized that the advice she was getting is in this relationship, this bad relationship became an idol for her. And it was tearing her apart. This man had become an idol. And the advice she was saying was, get rid of that idol. Get rid of that man. And instead, replace him with your status. Replace him making yourself your own God, dependent on yourself. Take a dysfunctional idol and replace it with a more functional idol. And this lady talks about, that was not what I needed. I didn't need dependence on myself. and I didn't need dependence on that man. I needed dependence on Jesus. He is the only one that can rescue me from these, from these temptations. He is the only one that can give me true life. He is the only one that can get me out of this destruction that comes from being this devastating destruction. We have to move to a place where it's not a secular response trying to tear down our idols. It's not a religious response trying to tear down our idols, but it's the true Christian response, which is repentance, worship, and wonder. Repentance, worship, and wonder. We have to understand that repentance is destroying those idols. It's not, I'm sorry I got caught. It's not, I'm sorry for the consequences of my sin. It's, Lord, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Not sorry that I broke your law. Not sorry that I blew up my life. But, Lord, I'm sorry that I I turned my back on you who gave it all for me. You went to the cross. You've given me life, and I've turned my back on you. It's this true repentance of putting it down, walking away from it. There's no, no going to church. There's no being good enough to overcome that addiction. There's no being good enough to overcome that idol. You have to tear it down, replace it with God, and let your eyes be fixed on Jesus is the only way to get away from that idolatry. It starts with repentance. And once we've repented, we repent mainly because we see this worship. This worship is this this high and glorious view of God. There's a, a, a passage in Isaiah where it says, woe is me, right? And if you, keep, if you read before you get to the point where Isaiah is, woe is me, he, he talks about in the year that King Uzziah died. And the, the, it's, it's this political picture. And King Uzziah was this great, Uzziah, he was a great king. God's people loved him as their king, one of their favorite kings. He kind of, he had this military mind and this agricultural mind. So while he was reigning, God's people were flourishing because they had this protection and this provision under, king, under this king. But this king got so puffed up with his own success that he actually went into the the temple and tried to make a sacrifice, even though it was the priest's job to make a sacrifice. He felt that because of his achievements, he had reached this status. And so in that moment, God actually sends him down with the, gives him a plague, right? And from that moment on, he, he lives the rest of his reign in hiding, and then God's people begin to, the, the kingdom begins to collapse. And in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of their life falling apart, in the midst of these two idols of provision and protection, they're crumbling before them. And in that moment, Isaiah has this unbelievable encounter. God shows up in such a powerful way. You see that he can see the, it's like a glimpse into heaven. He can see God sitting on the throne. He can see the, the, create, the creatures around him worshiping. And they're in this moment of the idols being torn down, of life being turned upside down, of everything collapsing around them because the idols have fallen, there's this sense of worship that God shows up in this magnificent, powerful way. 
We have to get to a place where we're sitting here, we've repented because we, we see these idols fall and our eyes have this high, glorious view of God. But then there's also this sense of wonder. And that's the incarnation of Jesus. That's this sense of, of not just this high view of God, but an intimate view of Jesus dying on the cross and having this relationship with us. The way we tear down these idols is worshiping the high and mighty God, but yet having this deep, personal relationship with Jesus. Worship must be greater than idolatry. With, with Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church, one of the things that they got critiqued for was they spent too much time worshiping, too much time praying and reading the scripture. But he understood that if the church was going to be stronger than the Nazi regime, they had to fix their eyes on Jesus. They had to worship and their worship manifests itself in reading scriptures, singing songs, praying prayers. If the church is going to be stronger than that, if we're going to be stronger than that, worship has to be stronger than idolatry. What idols in your life, what idols in your heart, what idols in our culture need to come down? And how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? How do we worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you. Our hearts, they're prone to wonder, but you are always faithful. We're never too far gone. No matter where we're at, no matter how far or how long we've pursued whatever idol is in front of us, give us the wisdom and the courage and the power to tear that down through worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.